Hello, and thank you for listening to Literacy Matters. I'm your host, Cheryl Lundy Swift. Today, I have the absolute pleasure of talking to two phenomenal education thought leaders, Leah Mermelstein, author of We Do Writing, Maximizing Practice to Develop Independent Writers, and Kelly Cartwright, author of Executive Skills and Reading Comprehension, a guide for educators in the second edition, and the creator of the active view of reading, along with Nell Duke. Welcome to the show, Leah and Kelly. I am so thrilled to be here. Thank you for having me. Me too. I'm so excited for this conversation. Yes. And Kelly, you know, I used you, your research along with Nell's research a lot in my, um, in my dissertation. So I want to thank you for sure. And, you know, before we get going, I want to make sure that people see what these uh, great materials look like. So, so Leah, this is your book. We do writing, maximizing practice to develop independent uh, writers, which is really, really awesome. I'm looking forward to really digging into it. And Kelly, can you hold up your book? Because I don't have that second edition yet. And I want people to know that that second edition came out in February. Um, so, so excited. Um, Thank you. Make sure you go out and get it. So I want to start by just kind of, you know, sharing that, you know, the active view of reading was developed by Nell Duke and Kelly Cartwright uh, in 2021. And what it does is it expands our knowledge of reading processes to support students' reading development. But what exactly does that teaching and learning look like in an actual classroom? Now, our conversation today will bring the researcher and developer of the model of the active view of reading into the discussion with a noteworthy educator, that's where Leah comes in, who's actually applied the active view of reading in diverse classrooms for the last three academic years. Now we will learn how the model builds on recent science, provides new clarity about teaching reading, and how academics and practitioners inform one another to explore expanded ideas about literacy. Now, after listening, you will walk away today with efficient, effective, and intentional lessons and practice ideas for your classroom. So with that said, you know, I really am excited, Kelly, to ask you this question. <laughs> I'd love for you to give us an overview of the model uh, and really kind of like a backstage pass, if you will, to some of the concerns, some of the questions that you and Nell Duke began with. And before I do that, why don't I put the model up so that everyone can actually see it? How's that? That's perfect. That's great. And I would love to absolutely give you this backstage pass and help you understand some of the things that we were thinking about as we developed this model. So, Kelly, <laughs> I would absolutely love it if you could give us an overview of the model and like kind of like a backstage pass to some of the concerns, some of the questions that you and Nell Duke really began with. Absolutely. Thank you for putting it up. That's going to really help our discussion. So one of the things that has always fascinated me about reading, even from the beginning of my career, is that although it looks really simple for us as skilled readers, you know, we're educators. Reading is easy for us. We love it, right? But it involves so many, many different processes, and they are all active and managed at the same time when we're engaged with texts. And we don't really notice or realize how much we need to handle when we read, like weaving together meanings of words and sentences and texts with our prior knowledge, while 
simultaneously doing all the work to decode words fluently and with expression. And Nell and I have both been concerned for decades that dominant views of reading make reading out to be a simple combination of two sets of skills. I often call these two buckets of skills, if you will, word reading and language comprehension. And often professional learning and classroom instruction treat these as separate things that readers need to learn and that readers need to do separately and that teachers need to teach separately. And the problem is that readers don't actually do these things separately. We mentally juggle all of these things at once while we read, but because we've been reading for such a long time and we're pretty good at it, we don't even realize what we need to do to manage it all well. It's like when someone asks you, how do you ride a bike? I don't really know how to tell you how to do that, but because I've been doing it for such a long time, I don't have access to what I'm having to manage to make that happen. Reading's the same way. And to go with another real life example here, I always like to point out that it's sort of like that game that we played as children when we would try to pat our heads, which I can do fine if I'm doing it by itself or rub our tummies, right? And I can do that fine if I'm doing it by itself. But once we try, see, I'm doing it already. I'm making a mistake. So once we try to pat our heads and wrap our tummies, as you're listening, I'm sure you're all trying to do this too. When we try to put them together, we need this weird third coordination ability, this ability to manage both. It's not just a mat matter of being able to pat your head when it's assessed independently and being able to rub your tummy when it's assessed independently. And I'm sure you've seen readers in classrooms who seem to be able to decode words well, assessed by itself, or they're able to engage in meaningful discussions about text. So focusing on meaning when assessed by itself, but then everything falls apart when they try to actively combine them when they're engaged with a text. And this is one of the really important pieces that seem to be missing from popular discourse around reading and from popular models of reading. But study after study has shown that active self-regulation is critically important to reading. That's often missing from conversations about reading. We often think about kids as needing to be, you know, filled up with the appropriate buckets of skills. I give them enough decoding instruction, I give them enough language instruction, and they should be able to make everything happen the way that they're supposed to. But they don't always. And you've seen that, I'm sure, in your classrooms. And another piece that seems to be missing is that these buckets, word recognition and language comprehension, are not actually separate. The simple view, for example, originally proposed that readers first decode words, right? They sound them out. And then the simple view, the original article proposed that they would actively apply, well, maybe not even so actively, but they would apply the language comprehension processes that they use in everyday life to what they've already decoded and comprehension of text would happen. So it was kind of framed as a sequential process. They learn how to decode and they do that. And then they applied language comprehension. But we now know from decades of research that these processes actually overlap. 
they interact and they mutually influence one another um, when they read. So these processes actually in inter inter they're interdependent. That's another way to think about them. And these kinds of findings really inspired my colleague and friend Nell Duke and I to develop the active view of reading because we wanted to, to really hold up those buckets as I talk about them of word recognition skills and language comprehension skills as super important to reading. These are critical. You can't be a good reader if you don't have the things in that blue circle on that image. And you can't be a good reader if you don't have the things in that red circle or oval, if you will, on that image. And we, we made sure to validate and affirm what we have known from the simple view, or if you're familiar with the rope model, those models that hold those things up. But what we've added is this purple area. Purple is the result of combining that blue and red, right? Where those processes are in that purple part are processes that contribute to both word recognition and language comprehension or processes that involve aspects of both. Like Morphology, for example, morphological awareness. You can see that there in the middle of that blue, the purple oval. When you're thinking about word parts, like in the word rereading, if I'm rereading something, or if I'm decoding the word rereading, I have to understand what each of those chunks means. That's in my red oval, right? That's the language comprehension piece or the meaning piece. But I also need to be able to take that multisyllabic word and apply my word recognition skills to decode each syllable and put them together in a way that produces a fluent reading of text. So I'm coordinating decoding and meaning at the same time in this process of morphological awareness. It involves both. So that's an example of a bridging process. Um, so the another thing that I want to point out here, aside from adding that active piece, which I talked about, so active self-regulation, that reading is active, it's not just a passive filling up of the right skills, we have to actively coordinate and deploy them, and they overlap. Another piece here is that Nell and I really wanted a model not based just in, you know, what we know is related to reading, but rather based in instructional research. And so every single component that you see listed in that model is based on instructional research that shows that teaching that component improves students' reading comprehension. And we uh, recently, with our colleague Matt Burns, um, conducted a meta-analysis of instructional research that shows that um, teaching word recognition and teaching language comprehension each have really important and significant effects. And I'll, I will skip over these questions. I'm going to come back to them. So yeah, there you go. So they have important, significant effects on reading comprehension, but we also showed that bridging processes and that active self-regulation piece, which guides word recognition, guides bridging processes, guides language comprehension, and helps kids put them all together, instruction in those things also contributes to children's reading comprehension over and above 
word recognition and language comprehension alone. And so if you think about this model, and I, I'm going to stop talking in a second, I promise. If you think about this model and what it does for an educator, if we flip back to the other slide, Cheryl, I, I can show these questions that it, they this model might lead you to ask. So first, we might say, just like we would ask with other models that are out there, do children have the word recognition and knowledge and skills they need to be good readers? And we might ask down with the with the red oval, do they have the language knowledge and skills they need? But this model adds a couple of other questions you can ask yourself, and that's whether readers can coordinate and integrate those word reading and meaning focus processes. Can they put them, put them together and manage them at the same time? And then also, do they have the self-regulatory skills that they need to manage all of these aspects of reading at once? Understanding that reading is complex and that they as little managers of their own brains need to be able to manage all of these things. And so that eventually, like us as skilled readers, that that complexity kind of rides below the surface. For us, it feels easy. And for them, if we're giving them the kind of instruction they need, we're going to get them to the place where it's automatic for them. But it's more than just two things. Wow, Kelly. I mean, that, I mean, it, it kind of is mind blowing when we all have used those kind of, I, I think about the simple view of reading and those kind of three bubbles, the decoding, um, the comprehension, and then equals reading, right? Right. <laughs> um, I And this has really blown that up in, in a lot of ways. I do want to go back to this slide. And for our, um, our folks in the classroom, could you tell us what these numbers mean? What does effect size actually even really mean? And how does it apply to my work as a classroom teacher? So an effect size is a number that I'm not going to go into a statistics lesson here, but you can think of an effect size as a number that tells you whether an intervention or a relation, but for us, we're looking at intervention work. So for this picture specifically, those effect sizes tell us whether interventions in the things in those colored ovals or circles have a statistically significant or a statistically significant means it's an effect that happens at a level greater than chance. You can think about it that way. But does word recognition have significant effects on reading comprehension? Does word recognition improve reading comprehension? Well, we, across many, 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 many studies, that's what a meta-analysis does for us, we found that yes, indeed, no surprise there, of course it does. And that's a that's a good moderate effect size right there. But effect sizes can range. If we have one of like 0.2, that would be small. If we have an effect size of say one, that would be really big. And so you can see how these how, how these compare to one another. But I, I don't think the magnitude is as important here as the fact that for each chunk of processes, word recognition, bridging processes, language comprehension, and active self-regulation, that every single group of processes, when we teach them, they improve reading comprehension. If those numbers were at zero for one of these, we would know, oh, teaching those things as a group, right, 
and studies that teach each one of those, that's what we looked at, they don't help. But we didn't find that. We found that in this particular meta-analysis, when we looked at all the studies uh, across a whole bunch of intervention studies, that word recognition interventions as a whole moves the needle forward on reading comprehension. So do interventions in language comprehension processes. But over and above that, so do interventions in bridging processes, and so do interventions in active self-regulation. So all of these things matter in moving that needle on reading comprehension. And that's what we mean in a practical sense when we talk about that effect size. Sure. Does that help? It, that, that does help. I think for individuals who don't understand that, I think you gave a really, um, really nice explanation of that. But now, so Leah, you see this graphic that you see here. Mm -hmm. uh, and when you first saw it, you didn't see these numbers. You just saw, so you didn't know the effect size necessarily. Nope. Nope. You, just, you just saw this plane, and I won't say it's too plain. You saw this active view of reading. It's very different, right, than what you've been seeing. What was your first reaction? As my, an first, my first reaction was absolute pure joy. Um, you know, <laughs> I, I'm going back to something Kelly said. It's more than just two things. So. <laughs> As somebody who's, who spends time in classrooms, and my role always is to help teachers translate research into impactful instruction and curriculum, yeah. to have this simple tool for complex work um, yeah. for, for busy teachers was absolutely pure joy because I knew that this would be a simple tool, but it, it would allow us to talk about the nuances of curriculum planning and instructional planning, um, the, the, the nuances with it in a, in a way that teachers could handle. Busy teachers who have 17,000 other things they're doing, it's one sheet of paper. And that was just absolute joy for me. So thank you so much for this just stunning model. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. So what does this model clarify for you, Leah, as an educator? So for a, um, a few things it, it clarified for me, it was one of these things I knew but I didn't have a model to, to wrap the conversation around. So one of them was the, the bridging process. Um, the idea that we need to teach into and have curriculum and instruction about doing more than one thing at once. Um, that we can't just say, oh, well, yes, they do more than one thing at once, but they'll learn it on their own. To actually um, plan for that and teach for that. So that when we think about you know, fluency, for example, um, in order to be a fluent reader, children need to be automatic with, with, with decoding the words, and that's going to help them read faster. But they also need to have strong enough comprehension that they're reading it, that they can read it with expression. And so really, in order to be fluent, you've got to be doing two things at once. And this model makes it crystal clear for me to explain this and show this to teachers. And so because we have this model, we pull it out literally at every single meeting I'm having, we pull this out and it, it, it gives us a simple tool to talk about what instruction would look like with fluency and what curriculum planning would look like with, for, for fluency. So the one thing, it, one thing it clarified was the bridging process. The other thing it clarified for me is um, the idea of cultural and content knowledge, that what um, a student brings to the table 
mm -hmm. is going to change how they learn to read um, and, and change the reading process. And again, this wasn't something, that idea wasn't brand new to me, but to have a model that honored that made it easier to be somebody who's helping teachers translate research into impactful curriculum and instruction. So that was huge. Um, the act of self-regulation. Um, you know, I just had this experience um, this week, this year I've been, or this summer, I've been tutoring students at our local community center. And um, I'm working with kids who find reading to learning to read hard. And so I went on that first day, I was working on getting kids to be accurate um, and more automatic in word recognition. They were grumpy. Um, <laughs> they were grumpy and not interested. Um, when I sat with them at lunch and did some low pressure reading, we had books out at lunch, we, we ate hot dogs and read books. The next day was completely different. Um, and so the idea of we can't ignore motivation. We can't, we can't um, that, that nuance, it makes a difference. And when I have it again, that wasn't something that was brand new to me, but to have it on the model that I'm using with teachers makes it easier to have those instructional and curriculum conversations. And then the last reason thing that brought clarity to me is at that time I was um, researching and writing my own book where I had created the We Do Writing Model, and I I didn't have the active view of reading of the active view of reading to look at yet. And so what I was looking at are different versions, different models of reading but I couldn't fit my own buckets into that. So what was interesting is um, I ended up having three buckets. I had language conventions, which, which really connected to word recognition. I had language um, composition, which connected to language comprehension. And I had writing process, which really, once their model came out, I said, of course, they're bridging everything together. Um, and so I, I, I had that same idea with my own model is that, we have to work with kids on doing more than one thing at a time. So um, it brought clarity to being able to have. So now when I go into schools, I have the active view of reading next to me and I have the we do model next to me. So it, it just brought clarity in those four really important ways to my work with teachers. Well, I mean, I, I agree. And I think you highlighted some of those very things for me um, that, that hit me really, really hard. and made sure that I understood that this was needed for all children and that culture and other content knowledge is so key. Um, Dr. Dr. Deborah Reed says that you know children are not empty vessels. They do come to school knowing things and have had experiences. And so we leverage those experiences. I think that's such a rich thing. I, I would love to know like so you hear, you know, Kelly, you get to hear a practitioner who is really very excited and use the word joy when it think, when you think about your active view of reading model, what were you really hoping that the active view of reading was going to do and would offer, would do for and would offer teachers? Well, first, I just have to say that I love your reaction, Leah. Your response shows me that the model's really doing what we hoped and even more than what we'd hoped. And I I also want to build off of something that you said when you talked about that sociocultural con content knowledge and their context and what children bring to the classroom and that every child is unique and they're bringing funds of knowledge that we have to honor and consider when we're considering 
teaching them reading, right? I mean, these these things are so important. A colleague, Kendall Turner Nash, Nash she's at um, Appalachian State. She wrote a book recently called The Children Come Full. They don't come empty. They're not empty vessels to be filled up with one size fits all stuff that we're putting into their heads. They're coming full of their own knowledge, their own language background. Some are emergent bilinguals. Some speak dialects at home that are not the same as the child sitting next to them or what have you. I mean, they come with different background knowledge that helps them understand or not understand a text in a particular way. So just hearing that the model helps you by having as a tool to bring all of these pieces into the conversation with teachers, that's huge. That's exactly one of the things that we hope that we would be able to provide a tool that would help to guide instruction. That's one of the big things. Because again, we base the active view and in instructional research. Every single component named in that model has instructional research with intervention studies that have shown to be, been shown to improve reading comprehension. So that's one thing. We wanted a, a model based in instruction. We wanted a model that would help teachers to be able to think about the complexities of reading in a way that made sense to them. And I'm what I'm hearing from you is that it made sense to you. So that's, that's mm -hmm. a, a good sign that yeah. we're accomplishing that. But yeah. we also hope to help educators visualize that complexity of reading. Um, and I, I think from the very beginning of my career, I have just been so frustrated with the idea that reading is framed as two things, you know, mm -hmm. word recognition and then language comprehension. And we put them together and the comprehension fairy comes along, waves a wand and comprehension happens. There was nothing about readers actively making things happen or managing those things at once. And so that complexity was buried, even though, and I agree that the, you know, the conventional instruction or conventional professional development and talk about reading says, you know, word recognition is complex and, and we don't just mean it's one thing. We mean that it's lots and lots of processes. Absolutely. And so is language comprehension and even more contemporary uh, views that align with the simple view or the rote model definitely show that complexity within each bucket, but they don't illustrate well the complexity that is involved in a skilled reader's head when we're putting it all together and that we need to be able to help students do that themselves. It's not going to magically happen. You can't teach one thing and teach another thing and expect that it will magically happen by itself. And I think that that piece of the complexity is one of the things that we wanted to bring out with this active view. Um, and that those are pieces that may be missed when we're guided by more simple conceptions of reading. So, and I love hearing your response, Leah, because it tells me that I think we may have done that, at least for you, right? For teachers I work with. Yes. Yay! <laughs> that is so awesome. So, so, so teachers that you work with. So tell me how, Leah, you've used this with districts uh, and for school planning and curriculum planning. Thank you. So one of the things I do um, with teachers and school districts is we 
create curriculum together. We, we, we create year-long curriculum, we look across grades, and we also create unit curriculum. And so like I said earlier, this active view of reading is sitting in my folder every single time I work with teachers. So when we are planning a unit, I just did one recently last week, we pull this out. And one of the things it's helped us to do is to be more precise in our learning targets. We always start with what kind of impact do we want for kids at the end of this unit? And so one of the things that we do is we categorize our learning targets by these buckets. So for example, we'll look at the word recognition bucket first and we'll say, what is our learning target for the word recognition bucket? So I was working with some kindergarten teachers. It was the beginning of the year. They knew in their phonics program, they were working on, I mean, I got the, the right A, P, M, T, A or something like that. They had the, the sounds and letters that they were working on and they knew if the goal is word recognition, that at the end of this unit, they wanted kids to be reading and writing words accurately and automatically using those sounds. And so being able to look at the name of that bucket and being able to look at what exact knowledge, we, we realized that would consist of some phonemic awareness. We can look at the bucket and say, there's gonna be some phonemic awareness work in that. There's gonna be some phonics knowledge in that, but there's also gonna be decoding skills. It's not just enough for them to know those sounds. And this model helped us to be very precise in that goal. And it also helped to build teachers' knowledge of what that goal and learning target meant. Then we move on to our next one. We moved on to language comprehension. One of the things we knew we wanted in, in, in that one is we wanted kids to be able to um, pay attention to um, the language structure and to be able, um, for example, if they were reading a sentence, to be able to scoop the nouns and the verbs together because that would help with comprehension. So if they were reading the sentence, a boy and a girl ran up the hill, we may be showing them in this how to scoop the nouns, scoop the verb and then scoop the phrase at the end. And so with that idea of if they're thinking about those chunks together, it's gonna build their comprehension. So again, we, we came up with that learning target by looking inside the, the language comprehension bucket. And then we were able to say, well, what's our bridging process? And the reality is it goes back to, just cause you can do each of those things separately, just cause you can decode with those sounds and you can scoop, doesn't mean you can put them together. And so we then came up with a, a goal around fluency of being able to use that word recognition and those, and those scooping techniques to read with, with, with fluency. Um, we also look at the act of self-regulation, um, but what this really has done is we start with learning targets and we hold the active view of reading model when we're coming up with those learning targets to make our learning targets more precise. And also what I'm trying to do is build teacher knowledge on what each of these buckets actually means. So Leah, first, I want to make sure our, our leader, our, our listeners really understand what you mean when you say scooping. Yes. Right? So what are you doing to scoop those uh, nouns and verbs? So what, what the teacher is showing them is that just to put those chunks together and read them faster rather than read them separate. So rather than say the boy and girl, if, if the teacher was teaching kids to scoop the text, they would say the boy and the girl. Got it. Got it. Okay. Kind of right. scooping up those phrases, scooping up phrases. Yes. 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 Got it. Yes. Awesome. Okay. Great. Well, I 
I certainly appreciate that. I love that you mentioned that, that you're specifically looking and that, that this makes you really develop very precise um, learning targets. Mm-hmm. Um, and it sounds like what that bridging process also helps you do is not just about learning targets, but now it's really learning outcomes as well as you kind of move towards fluency, which I think is great. You know, it's interesting. I'm just listening to Kelly talk beforehand. Um, and this is why I love this dialogue. It makes me think about my work a little bit differently. I haven't tended to think about the the order in these. And this, what this conversation is making me think about is that the bridging process goals are probably going to come later in the unit um, because we're supporting kids in, in bringing both of these things together in a, in a way that 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 is impactful. So that's, that's, a, that's a really great segue to ask this question to you, Kelly. So when you think about your research and, and uh, when, when you and um, Mel Duke created this model, you know, what kinds of conversations were you hoping that district leaders or coaches might be having with teachers um, to kind of make sure that students are becoming proficient readers? That's a really great question. And I'll, I'll go back to some things I emphasized earlier, because one of the pieces that was really important to us was to base this model in instructional intervention research, because I, I can look at a study that says, you know, reading comprehension is related to fluency, for example, but that doesn't tell me whether one causes the other, right? We want to know if I teach fluent reading, like Leah was just describing, if that intervention then produces improvements in reading comprehension. So those are the kinds of studies that we focused on, those intervention studies. Um, And that way, by relying on those kinds of studies to build the model, we knew that there would be clear instructional implications and that each and every piece in that model could could be taught to students with, with successful successful improvements in reading comprehension. So that's also why we named particular elements of each broad category of skills, word recognition, language comprehension, bridging processes, active self-regulation. So you're not just thinking about, oh, I need to teach word recognition or, oh, I need to teach language comprehension. We wanted to unpack all of the many things that might go into those things or as many as we could based on the instructional research we had access to. I'm sure, you know, science is, science progresses. That's one of the, one of the pieces of the title of the article where we publish the active view, the science of reading progresses. This isn't the be all end all, and we will continue to progress and learn more, but we're going to continue to focus on what's amenable to instruction. What things can we teach and what things should we be paying attention to when we find that readers may be having trouble? That's another way to use that model, to to look at a reader who's having trouble and then ask ourselves those questions. Well, let's look at word recognition. Which of these processes does the child have? Which of these processes does the child need more work with? Children may have difficulties with decoding because they don't have the knowledge of vowel sounds and how they correspond 
to letters, right? But they right. may also have trouble with decoding because they're fine with short words. I've heard children with reading difficulties describe this. I can read short words, but if you give me a long word, I have a lot of trouble. So maybe some children have trouble with decoding because of their multisyllabic components of words and bringing in their morphological knowledge to help them decode those. So the being more precise in how we can tackle instructional needs for students is really important. And then just making sure that we're understanding there that there are lots of ways that different pieces of reading may undermine students' success in reading. And it's not just those two buckets, word recognition and language comprehension, but that we can really think about these instructional these instructional targets in a more nuanced way, a more precise way to target all of the specific things that students might need. And our students are not one size fits all, that the students within a school, the students within a grade level, the students within a classroom are not all the same. Yes, everyone needs to learn to decode, but even within a kindergarten classroom, the decoding needs of those students may vary. So I may have a group of students who don't even have phonemic awareness yet. And I have another group of students in that same kindergarten classroom who are great with phonemic awareness, and they even have some letter sound knowledge. And so I'm working on segmenting and blending with them. And they may be in a different place, but it's all in that word recognition bucket. So we can't assume that that our students are one size fits all. And this helps us to see the fine distinctions, I think, in or many, I wouldn't say all, that's a bit much, but many of the fine distinctions that we can make in teaching and assessing and intervening for our students. Well, I really appreciate that insight, Kelly, because it, what, it, what you're ask, actually saying is for teachers that you can differentiate within these buckets. Yes. That, uh, you know, that of course, when we talk about, again, I don't know, phonological awareness, uh, for example, they, there are varying places that they could certainly be in and really to have the permission to actually uh, break those students apart to give them exactly what they need. So I, I, I think that's fantastic. And Leah, that, that bring, brings me to a question for you. How exactly do you use the active view of reading um, as a model for daily instruction? So what kind yes. of are they using? <laughs> yeah, and it's funny because as Kelly was talking, I'm already revising my thoughts about how how I'll use the use it. It's just a it's just such an amazing dialogue. Um, so as part of my work in schools, I'm often um going in and doing in classroom instruction. That in classroom might be me demonstrating a lesson and teachers um watching the students. It may be me coaching teachers. And these sessions typically have three parts. They tend they tend to have a briefing beforehand. Um, a lesson where we're in, in the classroom and then a debrief afterwards. And so, again, we always have the active view of reading next to us. And um, very often what we're doing in the briefing is we are looking at student data um, to see an area of need. So, for example, one recently I did is we were looking at student data through the lens of the word recognition bucket. And one of the things that we saw, and again, just like um, Kelly said, having those things underneath makes us be more precise than what we mean. We saw that their, their segmenting and blending was pretty darn strong. Um, that, that wasn't the issue that we were seeing. Um, they understood the phonics knowledge. They were accurate. If you, if you gave them the, the letter, they knew the sounds. They were pretty accurate. Um, their decoding skills 
were they were slow, but 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 they but they were able to usually do it. Um, what we didn't see is a lot of recognition of we weren't seeing that automaticity developing. So because we were looking at the bucket, we were able to be again. I'm, I'm using that word precise, more precise in what the need was. And when we were more precise about what the need was, it was easier to create instruction. So after we'd had the conversation about data, we then planned our small group work. We were able to say, okay, how are we gonna warm up in this group? Um, I, I often give them a protocol of, let's begin with some warm up work that's gonna feel easy um, and kind of um, get, get their juices flowing. What's the main work we're gonna do? Um, and what text are we gonna use because of that? So if we knew we wanted to move kids to more automaticity, what texts were we gonna use? And these are, these are all conversations that we're having. Um, in this particular situation, I did the modeling. And what I had kids um, looking at, I mean, kids, teachers looking at was, did, did my, what was the impact of my instruction? Did we begin to see kids who were um, recognizing words at sight rather than, than um, saying the sounds and reading each word? Um, were they able to do that? If they weren't able to do that or when they weren't able to do that, what do they think the reasons might be? And this is when we'll say, we don't have to look just in that word recognition bucket. Um, it may be something outside of that that's getting in the way. Maybe it's something about strategies they aren't or aren't you know, doing. Maybe it's something around language comprehension. And then during the debrief, we would talk about what we saw. Um, teachers would talk about um, places where they saw impact and places where they didn't see impact so that we could think about what might we do next to get that impact. So what I hear you saying is I think so powerful because what you're saying is we're looking at daily instruction by looking at assessment, by looking at the, like keeping the end in mind always and finding out, making sure that we understand what we've taught, but do we know what students know and can do? Which mm -hmm. are two separate things, right? Um, and so, if once we know what they can do um, and cannot do yet, mm -hmm. uh, provide some uh, some some real intervention um, that can make a difference as a result of that. So I I, I greatly greatly appreciate that. Um, and so when we think about this model, <clears throat> uh, the active view of reading, and I, I would love to know again, Kelly, what were you thinking about when you were you were considering teachers? everyday practice because you know when when we're talking about education we can get really heady right we mm -hmm. can really think about all the great research that's out there and there's some really awesome things that that are being done like what you and El Duke uh have created for us but at the end of the day there's a teacher sometimes in a classroom with 30 students <laughs> and they're all over the place in terms of their uh, reading comfortability, <laughs> their knowledge, um, and their motivation for that matter. Mm -hmm. What were you hoping for teachers to get um, and how it, you wanted them to use this as a conversation tool, but as a tool to really get better at, at their craft? What were you think? What were you and Nell Duke thinking for this? Well, for I, 
it's a that's a great question. And I want to build first on something that Leah just mentioned. She talked about looking within buckets and really refining our instruction, which is why we spelled out things within each of those circles or ovals. So thinking about a child with word recognition or maybe word recognition difficulties where they're still sounding out letter by letter, they're not sounding fluent or automatic. And Leah mentioned reading them by sight. I want to be very clear here that reading words by sight doesn't mean, as we see in some education circles, that children have taken flashcards home and memorized words, but rather that they've orthographically mapped. They've mapped those letters to those sounds and squished them together in their heads to make a pronunciation that matches on to a meaning they have in their vocabulary. And so that connects, that orthographic mapping process connects to what Leah said when she said, sometimes the difficulty with word recognition may not be inside that word recognition oval. It may be a language comprehension or bridging process piece. And sometimes it's vocabulary. It's mm -hmm. not having that meaning in their oral vocabulary. Vocabulary labels our background knowledge. If I have knowledge of the word elevator because we've talked about it or seen one in life, doing life with my family, then seeing that word in print, it's going to be more readily decodable because I have the meaning to help me. That's a long word, but we could go with a with a shorter word as kelp. well. You know, yes, right? I, I, a little girl I was working with this week struggled with the word kelp. Yes, yes. if you've seen kelp because yes. you've gone to the beach yes. or, you know, yes. that makes sense. But otherwise it's just kelp, kelp. And it doesn't, you can connect those letters and sounds, but without the meaning piece that's essential to orthographic mapping and connecting all three pieces together, it's not going to happen. And those three pieces, the letters, the sounds, and the meanings, we have hubs in our brains, in our reading networks for processing those things. And they are linked together in our brains, supported by those networks that, that regulate our active self-regulation, like our executive function skills. Our executive function skills help co connect up those pieces. So we have to look outside word recognition sometimes if it's not happening, it, because it all works together. And I, I think in working with practicing teachers and pre-service teachers, I always like to point to the active view model as a heuristic to help guide assessment and to help guide problem solving when we're working with a student who has trouble with reading, whether it's word reading or reading comprehension, just like Leah has described, because the difficulties may really have many causes. And so as we as we showed that slide with questions on it earlier, I, I like to think of the model as guiding us to ask, well, do, do my students or my student who's having difficulties, do they have the word recognition skills they need to lift? those words off of a page. Our good colleague Molly Ness often talks about decoding as helping children lift them off the page. But even if you lift the pronunciation off the page, it doesn't mean you have the background knowledge and vocabulary to know what it means. So do they have the knowledge skills, language knowledge and skills they need? Can they coordinate decoding and meaning focus processes? And do they have those active self-regulation skills they need to drive word reading, to drive language comprehension, comprehension and coordinate and integrate these while reading. So I, I think that model can 
really provide an assessment heuristic to, to make sure that our readers have all of these critical pieces of reading in place. Sure. Um, you know, you, there's a lot of nuggets in there. And one nugget that I happen to pull out and write down is something I'm going to take back with me. And that is vocabulary labels are background knowledge. Mm -hmm. um, yes. I yes. love that, that quote. Yes. It, mm -hmm. it's very true. And I love the permission to look at your model of actively reading and realize and there, it might be showing up as a word recognition problem, but it might not actually be that. It could be a vocabulary problem. Mm -hmm. So really looking at that a little bit more, uh, it, it allows, it gives us the gift of being able to kind of dive a little bit deeper to figure out what the issues might be. Well, I think that that helps us to see that word recognition isn't just one thing by itself, that vocabulary actually facilitates word recognition. And that's why vocabulary is in the bridging processes section of this model, because it's part of comprehending language. When my friend is speaking to me about kelp, I can understand it because of my language comprehension processes. And I have that vocabulary knowledge, but that vocabulary knowledge also facilitates the really complex cognitive process of word recognition. I'm not going to recognize a word if I've never heard it before, or I don't have a meaning for it. And that's a piece that we don't always remember. They're not separate things. Mm -hmm. Wow. That's, that's super, super powerful. Now, as we wrap up, I do have a, one question that I'd love to ask each of you. Um, so, you know, teachers are heading back and they're, and I know what it feels like to go back to a, a brand new school year. Um, you're super excited. You're a little bit nervous. Um, and for our new teachers, they're super nervous. Um, and what they want to do is they want to build students who are confident readers, right? Um, what would you tell them to do in the first 30 days to really get off to a great start um, as it relates to teaching their students how to read? We should go and and I'll, I'll have you answer that question first, Kelly. I would say know your students, know where they are, get the data. You need data. You need to know if they have phonics knowledge, if they have phonemic awareness, where they are with vocabulary. You need to know if they've got morphological knowledge, how fluent are they, all of these things. There are assessments that, you know, our schools over-assess children. That's another soapbox I could get on. But you can't just teach blindly without knowing who they are. So look at those folders, look at the cumulative folders that they hand you, look at data, find out where they are, do quick assessments with your students to know, okay, these are the kids who are having trouble with scooping when they're reading connected text in my second grade classroom. They should be able to do that at this point. So I'm going to have to work with these children on this. So know where they are, but not just know where they are in terms of these, you know, these concrete reading skills. Also know what they're interested in. That's where the motivation piece comes in. What does your classroom library look like? Do all the children depicted in these books look the same? The children in your classroom don't all look the same. So are we meeting the needs of all, all the children in the classroom in terms of interests and passion? Being interested in reading doesn't make you love reading, though. It's knowing how to do it. And I, I this is something that I, as educators who love reading, I mean, if you saw my house, I've got the next room over has shelves and shelves of children's books. And, 
you know, I'm a book nerd. I love reading, but we as book lovers can't go into a classroom and say, okay, everybody, I want you to love reading. Reading is the best thing ever because if you're a struggling reader, reading is not the best thing ever. And loving a book is not going to happen if you can't read it. So just keep keep that piece in mind um, is that loving reading comes from being able to do it. So. Yes. And that, and that's so, that's, that's so true. And it goes with anything. Like you don't really mm-hmm. love anything that really gives you a hard time or that makes you feel right. bad. Yeah. yeah. Leah, what, what would you say to, um, to teachers who are going back? What should they do in the first 30 days? Why am I not surprised? I wrote down on my notes, um, as you asked the question, why am I not surprised that my two are almost identical to Kelly's? Um, <laughs> Very so- so yeah. I, I, I'm actually, at first I was like, should I change them? And I'm like, no, I shouldn't change them because this will show how important it is. So my first um, idea was precise assessments so that um, the idea of we're assessing kids. And so I'll kind of build on it to say, we want to make sure that teachers understand what they are assessing for. Um, why am I doing, what am I going to learn from this? So very, very price, uh, precise assessments. Um, and then kind of adding to get to know your kids. Um, I think I'd also say create an environment that's relaxed, um, where children are relaxed. You know, I couldn't agree with Kelly Moore about, you know, 20 years ago when I first started teaching, I came in and, and I would say, you are going to love reading as much as I do. And I, and I would not say that now, because just like Kelly said, we're, we're, you know, for some of our kids, learning to read is easy. And for some of our children, learning to read is not. And that has nothing to do with their intelligence. It just has to do with the with with the way that their brain learns to read. What I wanna make sure is that my classroom is a place where kids can relax um, and say, I can work hard, I can make mistakes and my teacher will give me feedback. If I circle back to that, my work at Community Lifestyle this summer with, with kids who are finding learning to read difficult, um, really if I you know think about it and say, why did, why did their behaviors suddenly change? It wasn't because in those lunchtime um, reading sessions, all of a sudden they realized that reading was easy or all of a sudden that they realized they love to read. I think what happened is they realized they could relax with me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They yeah. felt safe. Yeah. Feeling safe matters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It really does. Especially when you're, when you're really learning anything, <laughs> you need to have that space to be able to make mistakes uh, because that's also how we learn and grow. It, this, this conversation has been wonderful. And I so greatly appreciate having an actual model that we can apply right away. You know what I mean? It is, you don't always, you know, we love models in education, <laughs> but they don't, they're not always applicable. So Kelly and Nell um, also, so Nell, if you're out there listening, we appreciate your work. Um, on this. And certainly, Leah, thank you for sharing with us how to actually apply this wonderful uh, model for our instruction. It's a pleasure to talk to you guys. Oh, thank you. you.